The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Episode 7, The Comedies of Aristophanes. So here's where we are. We've made it up to the 5th century BC. We're still in ancient Greece and in Athens in particular. We've spent a couple of episodes immersed in the Dionysian festival and the tragedies that grew out of that annual spring event. Can we just pause for a moment and say how cool it would have been to live in ancient Athens? Of course, we have to update that a bit and say that women are citizens and there are no slaves. And once we've done that, let's all enjoy the idea that we're walking around under shady trees, olives and oaks, thinking grand thoughts, listening to speakers, drinking good wine, and every year engaging in a festival to celebrate wine and song and the general phenomenon known as being alive, which, and here's what makes me love Athens so much, includes a contemplation of the brutality of life as well as the joys. For me, those are connected, and my spiritual ancestors in that belief are the Greeks, because at the Dionysian festivals, tragedies became the headline events. Tragedies. As Aristotle noted, these plays were widely viewed as the pinnacle not just of drama, but of art itself. Imagine that. The Greeks viewed these as more impressive than poetry, even in spite of the reverence, which we saw in earlier episodes, for poets like Sappho and, of course, Homer. What did people love about tragedy? Why did so many Greek citizens attend? Aristotle argued that it was cathartic, that viewing these events together as part of a community of thousands made the Athenians who went to the plays better citizens. It's a fascinating idea today. We think of community events like bowling leagues and PTA meetings as helping to tighten the bonds of community. What if half the population watched a spectacle designed around loss and hardship? You might say the Super Bowl serves this kind of function in America, and it does have a loser, but the differences are as pronounced as the similarities. Do we have any art or artistic event that's comparable? I've been to theater festivals in Stratford, Ontario, that would make you think we can get there if we're not there already. Thousands of people enjoying their ice wine and hot tea and bed and breakfasts and then capping things off with the brutal murders of everyone who dares to get in the path of the Scottish king. How about Grateful Dead concerts, or a tour? Maybe that's closer. But even those would only involve a small fraction of the population, and they might be too specialized in experience. We would need millions of people to participate in order to feel that it's as important to us as tragedy was to the Greeks. What about films? Maybe that's closer. Big popular movies are viewed at roughly the same moment in time, on the same weekend, throughout the country and the world. We all consider space operas or whatever notions of justice are conveyed in a comic book movie, or sometimes a really good drama or biopic that exposes us all to the same topic at approximately the same time. Art has its impact in our society. There's no question about it. Storytelling is still crucial to us somehow. And watching a movie in the theater is certainly a communal experience, particularly when it's a crowded theater. 
Hollywood tends to give us uplifting movies, which might be cathartic in a slightly different definition of cathartic than Aristotle's. And of course, we do still have tragedies, both at the movies and in live theater. They might not be quite as popular as they were for ancient Greece. Remember, prisoners were let out of prison to go to the Dionysian Spring Festival. But they're there anyway, if on a smaller scale. A much smaller scale. Tragedy and the centrality of it to ancient Athens remains hard to fathom. Today's subject, comedy, has a modern-day parallel that's easier to see. The Greeks alternated tragedy and comedy as part of their festival. Three days of tragedy, along with a comedy, and another form called a satyr that led to our word satire. And the comic plays that have survived are not terribly different from the ones we might see today. The jokes are different in their details, but broadly speaking, they're familiar. A lot of scatological and physical humor, puns, wild situations, and mocking well-known figures. Now, in an earlier episode, I talked about the kind of humor that I find funny and the kind of humor that I don't. A lot of what's in the Greek comedies falls into the latter category, especially what's called old comedy, which I'll explain further in a minute. So it's not the kind of thing I tend to laugh at, not to sound like a prude or a snob or anything, but I just tend not to laugh at fart jokes. On the other hand, I'm not sure I admire a comedian today more than Louis C.K., and I've heard him say that fart jokes are always funny. So okay, take that for what it's worth. I'm not going to look down on the audiences in ancient Greece for laughing at body humor. I'll accept that these are time-honored ways of finding humor, probably very rooted in our physiology and psychology. I will look for other types of humor, though. I like the subtler pleasures. I like dark edges. Let me give you an example. I'm not a prude. I'm just sophisticated. That's my view, anyway, of myself. A guy farting on stage is not sophisticated. It's a little bit lazy in my view. But here's an off-color joke or a piece of humor that I did find funny. This made me laugh out loud, and it still does. Eric Idle of Monty Python was being interviewed. You know Eric Idle. He's the one who was on the cross during the always look at the bright side of life scene in the life of Brian. And the interviewer ran into one of those lulls and asked a few stock questions, like, what's your favorite animal? You know those questions. The famous one is the Barbara Walters special. What kind of tree are you? Scraping the bottom of the interviewer well. So the interviewer says, if you came home and saw your house was burning, what's the one thing you would run inside to save? And Eric Idle, without missing a beat, says, my penis. It's a great joke. So you see, body humor can make me laugh. It just has to be unusual or somehow clever. It's like what they say about curse words. I've heard comedians say this over and over. Some comedians will use curse words just to get a cheap laugh. But what sustains is when you have some jokes there, when you use them in the service of jokes. That's the the litmus test. In any case, when we're talking about an entire play, I'll be looking for something more than just jokes. Are there any ideas in here? Can I engage on some level besides just snickering and pratfalls and puns? Is there a story? Does the play make a point? 
Is there anything artistic about how this is being done, or does it just seem cheap and lazy? And will I get bored over time? Which suggests to me that it is cheap and lazy. It's a one-note joke played out too long, or it's an empty sort of shallow humor. That's how I measure comedy. Well, let's back up. We need to measure comedy by one criterion above all. Is it funny? And if it is, then all the other stuff can be secondary. I've been to farcical plays that build and build and build until the entire audience is in tears. There's nothing deep or meaningful about it. It's just really, really, really well done. A comedy that's funny for a straight hour doesn't need to apologize for anything. It is its own art. And it's as hard to do as a high-wire act or putting together the inner mechanism of an intricate watch. And when it's done well, it's as breathtakingly beautiful as either of those things. And if you've been to a movie or a play where everyone is laughing, not just laughing but roaring with laughter, holding their stomachs, tears in their eyes, begging for mercy, well, my guess is that we can understand Greek comedy from that. The only ancient Greek playwright whose comic works have survived in any sort of body of work is Aristophanes. We have about a dozen of his plays, but they give us a pretty good idea of what he was all about. Aristophanes was born around 450 BC, and he died 60 or so years later, in 388 BC. We don't know much about his life, and most of what we do know is a guess from the way he appears in his own plays which is a dangerous game because he was portraying himself as a character in those plays, even if the character is essentially supposed to be the playwright. We also know that Aristophanes was an Athenian citizen, but it's not clear that he was born there. And we know that he faced prosecution at least once in his life, but we don't know many of the details of that. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Aristophanes wrote about 40 plays, we think, mainly about the social, literary, and philosophical life of Athens, and perhaps above all, about the issues that arose out of the Peloponnesian War which, of course, had such a literary and social impact on Greece and on the entire world, frankly. It makes the 27 years of war between the two cities seem like a century of battles between two global superpowers. Athens and Sparta. Imperialism versus conservatism. Freedom versus discipline and order. Democracy versus war machine totalitarianism. And yet, 
As much as we may find ourselves on the side of Athens, or at least I do, we can recognize when a society is arrogant and too eager to conquer or influence. Aristophanes was one of these critics. He often opposed the most warmongering among the Athenians, particularly the ones like Cleon, who stood in power. Aristophanes is still somewhat popular, although it's a lot to ask of a comedian to be good enough to be popular for this long. Try making someone laugh today. Now, try making them laugh 2,500 years from now. Do you think you can sustain that for 40 plays? So, we do our best to capture Aristophanes and his language, his puns, his witty remarks, and his topical allusions. Although, for topical allusions, you often need footnotes to understand them, which is a real deal killer when it comes to reacting to a comedy with anything like spontaneity. His plot constructions are not exactly tight either. Stuff just sort of happens not necessarily connected to each other, and it often dissolves into chaos. Though a good and energetic comedic playwright can overcome logic, and you can argue this on behalf of Aristophanes. Here's what's great about Aristophanes. He's fearless. This is no shrinking violet. You can picture the playwright as the lights dim. They had no lights, but you know what I mean. As the audience is settling into their seats. You picture the playwright standing to the side, smirking as the play is about to begin knowing that what he's about to unleash on the audience will shock them with its frankness, including sexual frankness and satiric bite. Fearlessness is an underrated quality. Some people think they have it when they don't, but that's another story. Greek comedy is often described as being in three phases, old comedy, middle comedy, and new comedy. Aristophanes falls within both old comedy and middle comedy. Old comedy is big and broad. Think of it as vaudeville. There's a chorus and mimes and burlesques and wild staging and big, broad plots. Sex jokes, uninhibited, physical comedy. But there's also a topicality that I'm not sure vaudeville ever had. There's broad, humorous satire and sharp invective, ad hominem attacks against the figures of his day. In middle comedy, there is no chorus. Things were calming down. Aristophanes' last play, or the last one that survived, is from this period. Some scholars think that it's the only comedy from the middle period that we actually have. And then, there was a milder and more realistic social satire. This was called the New Comedy. New Comedy, even though it's thousands of years old to us. But this doesn't need to concern us now, except to say that it's probably closer to what we would find funny and satirical today. Christopher Guest movies... John Stewart's Daily Show, and so forth. A little more sophisticated, less clownish, no pies in the face. Let's turn now to the plays of Aristophanes. I think you'll get a sense of his boldness. The Babylonians. We only have fragments of this one, but it's important. It was in the Dionysian festival, and it showed the Babylonians as the slaves of the Athenian public. The only problem was... The Babylonians were supposed to be the allies of Athens at the time, and they had sent delegates to the festival. The other problem, a bigger problem, was that it made fun of Cleon, who happened to be the ruler of Athens at the time. We don't know exactly what happened. We do know that he was prosecuted as a result of this. Maybe Cleon had a sense of humor or a devotion to free speech. The Acarnians. Of all the plays we have, 11 or so, that have survived intact, this one is the earliest, and it tackles war. War is hell, we all know, although sometimes we forget. 
But war is ridiculous, pointless. Sometimes, maybe more often, we forget that too. Aristophanes was there to remind his fellow Athenians. The play's hero, a farmer, is tired of the Peloponnesian War and cuts his own deal with the Spartans. More reasonable people, in particular an Athenian commander, attempt to stop him, but the ending clearly belongs to the farmer. The soldier winds up wounded and depressed, while the farmer is headed for a life of food, wine, and sex. This wouldn't be the last time war is the topic for Aristophanes. There must have been a great release for many in the audience. Athens spent years, decades, entire generations at war. War must have seemed endless and exhausting. It's no wonder that these satires were popular. Knights. That's K-N-I-G-H-T-S. Knights is another attack on Cleon. That tells us something, I guess, about how little Aristophanes was affected by the prosecution that had followed the play Babylonians. In Knights, Cleon is depicted as the slave of Demos, a stand-in for the Athenian people, and of course, the origin for the word democracy. He is depicted as the favorite slave, but what kind of a qualifier is that? That might be worse than being an ignored slave. Finally, Cleon is ousted from power by a sausage seller, who is even worse than Cleon. I'm going to go out of order here because I want to save the best two plays for last. Wasps. This is a satire on the courts, and in particular, the litigation-heavy Athenian society. Does this sound familiar, Americans? What I like about the, the play Wasps is that the main character has a passion for serving on juries, which is so excellent. We think of litigation as being driven by lawyers who profit off of argument and disputes, but we often fail to explore the idea of a citizen who so loves the feeling of power of serving on a jury that he can't wait to sign up for more. Sitting in judgment. It's a powerful feeling for the right sort of person, as many cops and judges know. And if you've ever been in a courtroom, you'll know that it tends to be older people who seem to like being in the jury box the most. Maybe because they feel like they're losing their voice and influence in society, or because they feel like society is going to hell and it's up to them to maintain some law and order, some old school or old style ways. Or is it because they're lonely? Who knows? There's another angle on this one as well. Cleon, that old demagogue, was widely viewed as exploiting the system of large subsidized juries. Attack juries, or the desire to serve on one, and you're attacking Cleon as well. Aristophanes wasn't exactly subtle. The old man's name in the play is Philocleon, which translates to Love Cleon, and his son is Fideli Cleon, which translates to Loathe Cleon. The son arranges for his father to hold a court at home, where they put the dog on trial for allegedly stealing some cheese. This cures the old man of his love of the courts. Everyone lives happily ever after. And in case you're wondering, there is no epilogue in which Love Cleon changes his name to Too Drunk to Care About Cleon Much Anymore. Peace. This was the first play written after Cleon had finally been killed, as had the warmonger on the Spartan side. The play suffers from not having the same edge. Who's going to satirize peace? Dick Cheney? These days, the play is famous for being the one where a farmer flies to heaven on a monstrous dung beetle named Dick Cheney. All right, those last three words were completely made up. Birds. I like the aim of birds, although it's a bit fantastical for me. Athens at the time was heading off to conquer new lands. They had just sent out an expedition to Sicily to conquer Syracuse 
but this turned out to be a disaster. Is this what Aristophanes had in mind with his wild idea? You tell me. A man becomes so disgusted with his city's bureaucracy that he persuades the birds to help him build a new city in the sky, which is given a name that I can't pronounce in Greek, but which can roughly be translated as cloud cuckoo land. Then, of course, the guy and the birds have to stop all the other humans from joining them in this fantastic city. Is this an attack on imperialism? Warning against trying not to reach too far? Or a reminder that greener pastures elsewhere may turn out not to be so green? Probably. The frogs. This is a strange one. I find it interesting because of the window it gives us on two of our three great tragedians. Dionysus himself, the god of drama, starts to worry about the state of tragedy since Euripides has died. So he heads down to Hades to bring him back, only to find that Euripides is down there organizing contests with his fellow tragedians. The contest backfires, and Dionysus winds up returning with Aeschylus instead. Aeschylus is more likely to help Athens, says Dionysus, and of course, by implication, Aristophanes. Screw you, Euripides. There were a few other plays. In Women at the Ecclesia, the women dress as men, take over the democratic assembly, and introduce a communistic system of wealth, sex, and property. If only. Sign me up, Aristophanes. There's another attack on Euripides that also involves women and effeminate men. We're getting into the cranky period of Aristophanes. And in Wealth, an elderly Aristophanes writes a preachy work that I've never been able to finish. It's a little tedious, and for the audience, it probably wasn't helped by eliminating the chorus. Aristophanes was losing steam. We also know of several dozen others, of course, that haven't survived. But let's go back to Aristophanes in his prime. These are the main two plays of his, the best, or at least my favorites, and arguably the most famous. Clouds In the clouds, Aristophanes takes a break from attacking Cleon and the state of Athenian politics and instead goes after the state of the educational system. And what a great target. This is the age of the sophists, who are often accused of arguing for the sake of argument, our word sophistry comes from this, or of dressing up language quibbles or simple little mental puzzles as deep philosophical insights. There's a battle of ideas here and it comes at an important time. In Athens, there's a view that civilization was not a gift from the gods, but had developed gradually. Man started out as primitive and animal-like and grew into what he was today. Aristophanes is on the side of tradition, the gods, the old ways. In other words, he was poking fun at the new, which included the academies that were sprouting up and all the young people who were drawn to these philosophical gurus. Aristophanes is on the wrong side of history here. It's like seeing those comics complaining about long hair or the Beatles or hippies. Guess what, Joey Bishop? You lost. You look old and dumb today. Plato mentions the clouds as helping to lead to the trial and execution of Socrates. Poor Plato. It must have been hard to have Aristophanes out there dissing his hero. Socrates in the clouds is a petty thief, a fraud, and he's ugly. And that's not even the worst of his qualities. Worst, he's a sophist one of those misleaders of youth. And to be serious for a moment, that's exactly what Socrates did die for, corrupting the youth of Athens, in particular because of his attitude toward gods, was what did him in. I know that this is the Aristophanes episode, but it is a little hard to forgive Aristophanes for this. 
even though Plato's accusation that the play led directly to the trial is probably something of a stretch. Setting that aside, the parody of what Socrates teaches at his academy, the sophistry he imparts, is pretty impressive. The students brag that Socrates has figured out how many of its own feet a flea can jump by making one wear wax slippers. And he has shown how a gnat farts. And now he's suspended, when we encounter Socrates, he's suspended in a basket, gazing at the sun. Does this sound familiar? We make fun of philosophers, even today. It's a fairly easy target. Sometimes it's important, and sometimes it seems a little unfair. Here's Socrates teaching someone how to make a wrong argument sound right, which Aristophanes portrays as the point of Socrates' academy. Listen in particular for the way Socrates scoffs at the gods, which doesn't strike our ears all that blasphemous or scandalous, but would have been irritating for a section of the audience who still valued tradition and, tradition and conventional thinking, and who would have come to the theater already uncomfortable at the transition Athenian society was making from belief in the gods to a more rational look at the natural world. The character's name who encounters Socrates is Strepsiades. Strepsiades says, Oh, goddesses of earth, what august utterances, how sacred, how wondrous. Socrates, that is because these are the only goddesses. All the rest are pure myth. Strepsiades, but by the earth, is our father Zeus, the Olympian, not a god? Socrates, Zeus, what Zeus? Are you mad? There is no Zeus. Strepsiades, what are you saying now? Who causes the rain to fall? Answer me that. Socrates, why these, and I will prove it. Have you ever seen it raining without clouds? Let Zeus then cause rain with a clear sky and without their presence. Strepsiades, by Apollo, that is powerfully argued. For my own part, I always thought it was Zeus pissing into a sieve. But tell me, who is it makes the thunder, which I so much dread? Socrates, these, when they roll one over the other. Strepsiades, but how can that be, you most daring among men? Socrates, being full of water and forced to move along, they are of necessity precipitated in rain, being fully distended with moisture from the regions where they have been floating. Hence, they bump each other heavily and burst with great noise. Strepsiades, but is it not Zeus who forces them to move? Socrates, not at all. It's the aerial whirlwind. Strepsiades, the whirlwind. Ah, I did not know that. So Zeus, it seems, has no existence. And it's the whirlwind that reigns in his stead. But you have not yet told me what makes the roll of the thunder. Socrates, have you not understood me then? I tell you that the clouds, when full of rain, bump against one another, and that, being inordinately swollen out, they burst with a great noise. Strepsiades, how can you make me credit that? Socrates, take yourself as an example. When you have heartily gorged on stew at the Panathenae, you get throes of stomachache, and then suddenly your belly resounds with prolonged rumbling. Strepsiades, Yes, yes, by Apollo I suffer, I get colic, then the stew sets to rumbling like thunder and finally bursts forth with a terrific noise. At first it's but a little gurgling, papax, papax, then it increases, papapapax, and when I take my crap, why, it's thunder indeed, papapax, papax, papapapax, just like the clouds. Socrates, well then, reflect what a noise is produced by your belly, which is but small. 
Shall not the air, which is boundless, produce these mighty claps of thunder? Strepsiades. And this is why the names are so much alike. Crap and clap. But tell me this. Whence comes the lightning, the dazzling flame, which at times consumes the man it strikes, at others hardly singes him? Is it not plain that Zeus is hurling it at the perjurers? Socrates. Out upon the fool, the driveler, he still savors of the golden age. If Zeus strikes at the perjurers, why has he not blasted Simon, Cleonymus, and Theorus? Of a surety, greater perjurers cannot exist. No, he strikes his own temple in Sunium, the promontory of Athens, and the towering oaks. Now, why should he do that? An oak is no perjurer. Strepsiades. I cannot tell, but it seems to me well argued. What is the lightning, then? Socrates. When a dry wind ascends to the clouds and gets shut into them, it blows them out like a bladder. Finally, being too confined, it bursts them, escapes with fierce violence and a roar to flash into flame by reason of its own impetuosity. Stripsiades. Ah, that's just what happened to me one day. It was at the Feast of Zeus. I was cooking a sow's belly for my family and I'd forgotten to slit it open. It swelled out and, suddenly bursting, discharged itself right into my eyes and burnt my face. There, that should give you a taste of Aristophanes. It's readable, it's understandable. Maybe a little, well, I'll save my thoughts on the humor until the end. At the end of the play, the sophistry of Socrates enables a son, that is, the son of Strepsiades, to defend the beating of his own father. And the academy is burned to the ground. Easy to see where Aristophanes stands in his place. The translation of that excerpt was courtesy of the Internet Classics Archive, hosted by MIT and Daniel C. Stevenson, by the way. Now, let's move on to my favorite play, the one I suspect you've been waiting for, Lysistrata. Lysistrata came in the wake of the disastrous defeat of the expedition to Sicily. Athens had had its fill of war. In fact, a year later, there was the famous revolt of the 400 in Athens, where a new oligarchy came to power based on a platform of making peace with Sparta. When a society goes through war as long as the Athenians had, it's natural for the citizens to start to wonder, who's benefiting from this? Clearly, there's profit to be made for a few, and glory to be had for a few others. But what about me? I just see waste and death and destruction. And if you're a woman or not a property owner, the picture is even more clear. You send your sons or husbands off to fight in a war, put up with sacrifices. Why? Who said that this is how it has to be? And if a war is a year long or two years, it's one thing. But what if it's 20 years or longer? What if, the, what if your society seems addicted to war? An entire generation losing its youth with no end in sight. In Lysistrata, the city's women band together and declare a sex strike. No sex for the men until the men agree to make peace. And the women get the Spartan women to go along with it as well. The plan works. This is a high-concept play with surprisingly bold and modern ideas, or relatively modern, let's not get carried away. We can give Aristophanes bold, though. It's one of the boldest plays you'll find. What an imagination. It reminds me of Bob Dylan's ability to write a song like Blown in the Wind that immediately sounds a hundred years old, like an old folk song that has been in America forever and should be attributed to unknown. But no, Bob Dylan wrote it. 
Lysistrata is like that. You hear it, you hear the story, and you think, it must have been a myth or an old legend, something that grew out of the murkiness of oral storytelling and was there for Aristophanes to pluck. But no, it was Aristophanes dreaming up something fanciful for that year's Dionysian festival. What a triumph. I know what you're thinking. There's a lot of gender politics in a play like this. And you think it might be fine and if it's been adapted by someone else, but the play itself, come on. Is it going to be really annoying to go see a play like this? Well, maybe not. Listen to these lines from early in the play. Lysistrata says, There are a lot of things about us women that sadden me, considering how men see us as rascals. And her friend says, As indeed we are. Now look, one reading of this is kind of awful. That women are bad, or that all men's stereotypes of women are true. Now, imagine a different reading of these lines, which we would get because lines would be interpreted by actors and directors of a modern play. Imagine these parts are being played by Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. You'd have something different, right? You'd have two characters who are taking different views, two people, individuals who are playing off each other. They're friends. One is cerebral, more cerebral. One, a little more earthy and real. There's no fixed commentary from the playwright. The attitudes shift and change, and we wind up enlightened by the issues rather than clunked over the head by them. That's the goal anyway. That's what a good interpretation of a play would do. And we can credit Aristophanes with giving us that, even if it wasn't his intention. That's the alchemy of the playwriting art. So here's where we are. One Greek playwright, Aristophanes, who by the accident of history himself has to represent an entire experience, the experience of going to watch a comedy in the theater of a people, the ancient Athenians, whose sensibility and aesthetic taste we have a lot of respect for. You might say that comedy itself is on trial. We know there are jokes today that are funny. Can there be such a thing as a 2,500-year-old joke? Can a joke that's that old really hold up? It's easy to say that Aristophanes is important. For that, we can take the word of people we, we respect, or we can read the themes and the ideas. We can read the summaries and find out whether we think Aristophanes was important. But can we say that he's funny? I'm not going to pretend that everything you read in the plays of Aristophanes is funny. Not even close. And in fact, it's even worse than that. You can see jokes that are trying to be jokes and aren't funny. Ultimately, though, I'm going to postpone that question until the end. Let's just say that it's truly the only important measure of a comedy, right? The question of whether it's funny. First, I'm going to give you a couple reasons not to read Aristophanes and three reasons why you might want to. Reason number one. Plays are never as funny on the page as they can be on the stage. That's just true across the board. I've read a lot of screenplays and plays and television scripts, and although now and then there's a joke that makes you laugh when you read it on the page, and it doesn't play well in real life, that's rare. In fact, that might tell you that the joke has been poorly executed, unless it's a kind of meta joke that's put there for the reader but can't be conveyed to an audience. No, it's usually not fair to measure a comedy by the text. Reading a comedy is a poor substitute for seeing it acted out. You need life to be breathed into those jokes. Reason number two. 
Comedy that relies on topical references are not funny. That's not the fault of Aristophanes. He wasn't writing for us. He had his own audience. You find it funny that Parmenides had big ears? Me neither. We can give Aristophanes the benefit of some doubt here. It doesn't mean we have to pretend that we prefer Aristophanes to The Simpsons or Christopher Guest. Now, reason number one for why you might want to read Aristophanes. Reading might be better than watching. Remember everything I said about plays not being as funny on the page? Forget it. Sometimes it's better to read it because you can imagine it's funnier than it is. I can read Lysistrata and imagine Tina Fey and Amy Poehler in the parts, and I can guarantee you that this twist, women I respect, comic geniuses who would give this play their own special twist and stamp of approval. Even though this is only in my imagination, it's better than anything I'll see. And there's the sheer time element. You can skip around in a play, dip in and out, read for five minutes, skim. Sometimes it is better to read a play than to have to sit through one. And it's worth knowing what's in Aristophanes, even if it's something that doesn't make us laugh as loud as, say, Calvin and Hobbes. Here's reason number two for why you might want to read Aristophanes. Ideas. Aristophanes had at least two killer ideas that are astonishingly relevant even today. First, the idea he had that women would deny men sex in order to end wars. It's such a creative idea, even if it's completely entangled in gender politics and sexual politics and political politics. Maybe I should say it's a creative idea because of all these things. You can have your comedy about two twins separated at birth, and they're about to marry the wrong person, and so on and so on. Give me a comedy about women banding together and trying to to accomplish an external political goal through an internal domestic action. Yes, it's problematic. It's still interesting to think why that's so. Because here's the thing. You can take the view that a play like this with its plot would essentially reduces women to objects or vessels or sexual beings. And I won't argue with you. Or you can take the view that a better solution would be to give women the vote. Give them a say in whether there should be war. And I will agree wholeheartedly and say that maybe that's what Aristophanes had in mind as well. Or you can take the view that in Athens, women didn't have the vote and wars affected them negatively. And what Aristophanes is doing is demonstrating these things without necessarily celebrating them. That's all fine. I have my position and you have your positions and I'm sure there are versions of Lysistrata that you'd be fine with that me and others would find impossibly archaic. Or there'd be adaptations that I and others would think improve the play by making some of these points in a different way or by adapting the play to a society like ours that has different relevant issues. You might find these improvements to be preachy or clunky or unnecessary or grating. Hey, I'm happy just to think about these things. Do we get any of this from the play about the twins marrying the wrong person? Maybe a little, but it's harder to find. This one tees up a fascinating idea that's rich and powerful in a fascinating way. When I go to visit the ocean and I wander out into the midst of all those waves, I always think of the same thing. There's so much energy out here. All this heavy water moving back and forth all the time across this vast expanse. And nobody's making it happen. It just goes on. All this energy moving, transferring, whether anyone is even here watching it or not. I think of masculine desire as being something like that force in the ocean. It's untapped, unseen, and incredibly powerful. 
Half the adult population is thinking about sex a lot of the time. What if there's a new way to channel that energy? That's what's interesting about Lysistrata, even if the idea is, has some problems at its core. But why is it problematic? It's a question every society should ask itself, and it should listen to different possible answers. Right now, the only people who seem to have really tapped into that question are the people who advertise beer commercials during football games. There's room for others to think about it as well. The second big idea is the one in the clouds. It's easy for us to glorify Athens as this wonderland of ideas and discussions and philosophical achievement, but we know philosophers in real life. They might smell bad, or have things stuck between their teeth, or accidentally grab our lunch out of the fridge. They might come up with crazy ideas on their way to greatness, and they might just be rude or snobbish or arrogant or otherwise impossible to live with. We have these names, these historical figures, and this setting of incredible intellectual ferment in ancient Athens. It's nice to know there were a few people around who thumbed their noses at it and got on with the business of practical realities. And here Aristophanes got lucky from a historical perspective. His subject was Socrates, probably the greatest or most renowned philosopher who ever lived. If his subject was some guy who turned out to be wrong about everything and who everyone forgot about five years after the play, who would care? Okay, even as I say that, I have to backtrack a bit because there might be something interesting if that satire was done well. We can make fun of the figure of a philosopher or any other profession or character type, even if the person being satirized is not well known to us. Having it be about someone we know is just gravy. But let's keep that in mind as we read The Clouds, because this isn't just fun as an attack on Socrates. It's fun as an attack on the act of philosophizing. The commitment to abstract thinking. The idea that you need to question every little thing. Philosophers have a particular way of falling in love with their own ideas, and the act of thinking that can go overboard. Let's find the laughs in that human quality, even as we do it ourselves sometimes here on the podcast. Reason number three. Our final reason for why you might want to read Aristophanes. You have some other individual particular reason to read it. This is one of those answers that has multiple subparts. I don't mean it's required for a class. I mean that you have your own agenda. Maybe you yourself are a playwright. Maybe you're fascinated by the role of women in Athens and want to see what their views of sex and war were, maybe to compare with the views that we have today. Or... Maybe you just want to see those views as conveyed through the prism of Aristophanes and his satire. Maybe you enjoy Plato and Socrates and want to untangle Plato's Socrates from the historical Socrates, so you're going to another source. Maybe you dislike Plato and Socrates and want to see someone making fun of Socrates' ideas and the figure that he struck walking around Athens. Maybe you're just fascinated by the idea that Socrates actually existed and you'll read anything about him you can. That, by the way, is my own view. So there we go. Reasons to skip Aristophanes. Some reasons to read him. But do I find him funny? I probably have hinted at and made clear my own position here that whether I do or not might not matter all that much. And yet, it's the most important measure of a comedy. I'm bound by two conflicting principles. Not the first time that's happened. So, let me be honest and tell you, it's not especially funny. There are a few parts that are, and some things made me chuckle. But on the whole, I would not recommend reading this for the laughs. Find a good production of it. 
enjoy that. And hey, if Tina Fey and Amy Poehler put Lysistrata on the stage, you'll find me in the front row. Spike Lee has a new movie out that's based somewhat loosely on the play. It's called Chirac. I'll check that out. If Will Ferrell or Christopher Guest takes on the clouds, or if someone unearths a lost Monty Python version of it, I'm there. But if I'm honest with you, I enjoyed reading Aristophanes for the way that the plays made me think, not for the way that they made me laugh. Dip into the plays sometime for the learning experience, and then, when you need cheering up, when you need to experience a true belly laugh, go to some crowded theater and watch Chris Rock or Melissa McCarthy or whoever it is who makes you laugh the hardest. That's it for this episode of the History of Literature. We're heading into the holidays, which may mean a lighter posting schedule. We'll try to be back Monday with another episode. Next time, we're going to jump out of our Western and Greek-oriented timeline and see what's been going on in China. And by what's going on, I mean what was going on several thousand years ago. When will we get to Chekhov? Ah, well, maybe that will need to be a supplemental episode. Many thanks to all of you who have left comments at jackwilson.com or historyofliterature.com or who have sent me emails at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com. Of course, that's Jack Wilson, J-A-C-K-E, Wilson, author at gmail.com. I truly appreciate it. I also hope you're finding it in your heart this holiday season to share the love with a ranking on iTunes. It is literally just a one-second click on the fifth star no strings attached. Watch it light up on your screen and think of the light that you're bringing to Mr. Jack Wilson during this special season of giving. Okay, that's it for now. We'll be back Thursday with another Restless Mind show and Monday, hopefully, with another episode of the History of Literature. Thank you for listening. Be good to each other. Keep reading and we'll see you next time.